From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. The theory of abiotic oil states that oil arises from inorganic processes that occur deep within the core or lower mantle of the earth, and uh, rather than from the slow transformation of animal and plant matter into hydrocarbons. So abiotic oil, imagine the ramifications. There's no such thing as peak oil. We're not running out of oil. Oil wells are replenishing themselves. Now, of course, this idea perhaps is kind of scary to those who subscribe to man-made global warming. In fact, it's very bad news because if the oil is replenishing, it's renewable, which means it's not going away anytime soon. That's one of the topics that we'll take up with science writer and uh, one of the founders of Principia Scientific International Joseph A. Olson, he returns to the program to discuss abiotic oil, and, well, he's here for the uh, entire show. We've got much to discuss over the next two hours. We should have plenty of time to get into uh, other things besides abiotic oil, including some perplexing questions having to do with the Saturn V rockets used in the Apollo space program and the, the lunar lander. Something doesn't quite add up, and uh, these problems, let's say, Just add further credence to the whole idea that the lunar landings were perhaps a hoax. We'll also get around to discussing 5G and some of the latest data on potential health risks associated with 5G. Carlos Kajina is the technical producer. Ryan White is our live stream producer. And yes, we're live streaming on my YouTube channel, Strange Planet. Hello to all of you who've assembled in the live chat. Don't forget to hit that red sub button if you're new to the the, uh, YouTube channel. Joseph A. Olson is a retired engineer. He's written over 100 major civil engineering and climate-related articles. He's a founding member of Principia Scientific International and one of several co-authors of the book Slaying the Dragon, Death of the Greenhouse Gas Theory. Joseph Olson, welcome back to the program. How are you? Delightful to talk to you again. I gave a very unscientific explanation of abiotic oil. So if I could just get the official definition, what is it? Abiotic oil. Okay. There's two competing hypotheses, and one of them is close to being a theory. One of them is that the only petroleum on the planet comes from dead dinosaurs and you know ferns and organic matter that was interred in, in the crustal formations, and it's decomposing, and that's what's providing oil. And that means oil that is finite and that we're going to run out in a real short period of time. And that was a, a hypothesis, peak oil hypothesis, was put forward by M. King Hubbard in the early 50s. And that's a complete joke. They embraced that idea because the bankers wanted to take us off of the gold and silver, which had been the traditional forms of currency and put it on something that was a decreasing supply so they'd have an automatic inflation factor. So what happens is that the production of gold and silver 
roughly matched the the increase in number of human beings. So you had a stable currency that everybody could agree had value. It has a lot of uh, it value from a manufacturing and an industrial standpoint for both of those materials, but also it's got numismatic value, and it's you know because it's rare, it's something that we could agree on as a, a trade of labor for minerals. So the idea here, Joseph, is you have to create a sense of scarcity for something to have value. Correct. And then it has to be something that, that you have a value for anyway. So you could melt copper pennies and make a, a copper pot. You could melt nickels and get the nickel out and use it to plate things. And So they had intrinsic value regardless of what they were actually made of. You know, So it's not like paper where... It doesn't have a whole lot of value. You can uh, you can use it to take care of bodily functions, but that doesn't mean that it's a good value beyond that other than just you agree that it's worth something. So the bankers embraced the idea of peak oil because it gave them an automatic inflation base for what they wanted to switch the money supply over to in the 70s when they took us off the gold standard and they made all of the oil transactions to be done in US dollars. Okay, so so, so that's the that's the uh, the the version of organic oil coming from hydrocarbons coming from fossilized plants and animals. But what about abiotic oil? What is the mechanism then by which abiotic oil would be produced deep within the earth's core? Just give me an okay. overall okay. idea of how the right. abiotic oil is formed in the earth. Okay, the Russians, when they drilled their oil wells, they noticed that they had water coming out of the oil wells. Well, oil floats on water, so the water would have been heavier than than the oil. And water is at least twice, uh, solids are at least twice the density of oil, of water. So that means that if you've got water underground, it would not be able to be there by being pulled down by gravity, that the only way you get water underground is that you have a nuclear reaction where the uranium, as it's decomposing, is producing hydrogen, oxygen, and carbon atoms in addition to the other daughter atoms that it can produce. And under high heat and pressure, those hydrogen, oxygen, and carbon atoms are going to want to form a molecule because it makes it takes up less space. And so in the process of forming molecules, it would form like, CH4, which would be methane, one carbon atom, and four hydrogen atoms. And that has a specific gravity, 0.43. It floats in air. If you, you fill a balloon with natural gas, and it'll float up in the air. The reason I call it natural gas is because it's natural and it's everywhere. Okay, so what you're saying is then that the mechanism uh, for the creation of oil underground is not decaying organic matter, plants and, and dinosaur bones. It is decaying uranium? Decaying uranium and, and thorium. And Earth has 259 billion cubic miles of mostly molten rock. And if you do the the wiki ratio of percent parts per billion of uranium, you end up with 700,000 cubic miles of uranium. For thorium, you end up with 1.2 million cubic miles. That's an enormous amount of feedstock under a giant nuclear reactor 
that's producing bubbles, and those bubbles want to form molecules, and so they end up forming. And then under high heat and pressure, you can form longer and longer chains of hydrocarbons. So in so, other words, it's not technically, you can't call it renewable because the, the amount of uranium is finite, but it is so vast, so common, that it might as well be considered uh, renewable. Is that fair? To say that's fair. Earth's Earth's original atmosphere was ammonia and methane. Well, where'd that methane come from? The planet has been producing hydrocarbons for billions of years, and we've got at least a billion year supply of of nuclear feedstock to continue that production. We might be currently consuming it at greater rate than what the planet is producing, but it's absolutely not finite, number one. Number two, if we're not harvesting and using this, this resource, then it ends up being a, a hazard. So I wrote my Oh, that's my interesting. Article. If we're not using it, it's going to come up through the, the vents in the ocean and so forth and would, would be hazardous to the environment and our health. We need to use the oil. Correct. It, it's, you know... It, whether you want to be biblical about it or not, it's like a gift from God that if we don't use it, then it ends up being uh, uh, spoiling the the Eden that we were given. So anyhow, and just how how long does that process take? So uh, while as the uranium is decaying, and these these the hydrogen and the carbon and the oxygen are forming uh, molecules, hydro, hydrocarbons. How how long a process is that? probably close to uh, instantaneous. It's just like what's going on in an oil refinery. You can take uh, a petroleum feedstock and you can bubble hydrogen through it and you can change it from a liquid to a, a grease to a plastic to paraffins to waxes. There's a whole series in, in the hydrocarbon chain that you can create in a factory just by adding additional carbon dioxide and additional uh, hydrogen to produce a longer chains. And that's the Fischer-Tropez process of uh, making gas from coal uh, gas. So you, you take coal and you, and you convert it into methane gas, and then you add additional hydrogen and carbon dioxide, and you can turn it into gasoline and diesel fuel, and that's what the Nazis were doing during World War II when they had no access to additional supplies. Okay, so just to be clear, coal is uh, is a fossilized plant, correct? Correct. Yeah, it was, okay. it was interred under... under, under uh, changes due to the tectonic plate movements, the, the, the certain soil layers were subducted, and then mm -hmm. they're underground. They are mats of thick um, organic matter, but they're being constantly um, converted into a larger change hydrocarbon and having a more burnable uh, product and a more energy-dense product by the gasification of the of the gas that's coming through. That was one of the principal reasons why the miners carried uh, canaries into the coal mine, was because a very low concentration of methane gas would tell them that the canary died, it's time to get out of the mine before the mine explodes. Ah, uh, okay. So, what about natural gas? Is that 
Um, is that inorganic? Yes. Yes. Because it's, it's the simplest uh, gas molecule, and it's, it can be from an organic source. You can take uh, archaea, which is a, a different life form, single-cell life form of, of bacteria, and you can put it in the gut of termites and uh, rudimentary animals, grazing animals, and actually in people, and they will produce methane as one of the byproducts. So you can produce it organically, and you can produce it from waste products. Our, our sewage treatment plants produce methane, and, and so, our landfills and, and, do. They have methane recovery systems for right. those. What about, and can some oil be organic? It picks up, as you're filtering through these layers, it picks up elements because it's a solvent. So you, you're producing a petroleum product, and then you're bubbling it through organic layers so that as it goes through those layers, yes, it is a solvent. It does absorb some of the uh, content, and that's why the petroleum products differ worldwide. You can take just a sample and and do a spectra analysis on it and go, oh, my God, this, this oil came from Venezuela, and this oil came from, you know, it's Brent crude, or it's Texas West Texas sweet, or it's Canadian tar sands, you can tell the origin of the oil by the impurities that it picks up as it's being passed through those organic layers and it's filtering out different elements and, and molecules along with it. But All right. So anyhow, so, getting back... We're, to we're coming up on a break here, Joseph. I just wanted to fit in one more question and then we'll, we'll, yes, sir, we'll resume this conversation on the other side. And someone... Uh, with a rather interesting handle here. I'm going to my YouTube live chat. I wasn't going to take questions uh, until a little later, but this is a good one. And, and that is, um, how do the, the, the oil sands fit into this theory? Here in, uh, in Western Canada, the oil sands, uh, is that inorganic or organic oil? It's the, the same oil. It's just that it's, uh, you know what, VOCs are uh, volatile organic compounds. Those are the ones that evaporate off the quickest. So those oil deposits were placed in those sands a long time ago, and then the sands have had a, a long period of time to outgas the lighter volatile things through the sand layer. And so if you'd have gone to that part of Canada a million years ago, you'd walk around going, gee, this place stinks because the petroleum products would have just been bubbling out of the ground. With all of those volatiles left, gone, then what you end up with is, is basically the asphalt, which is the heavier molecules from the but, petroleum. But, but is it inorganic or is it organic? It would be inorganic because all of it's coming from the same place. Ah, got it. All right. Um, now, if if this is true, abiotic oil is true, and my word, I hope so, and it makes sense what you're saying to me. It makes perfect sense. But uh, is there evidence, so, uh, so for example, oil wells, uh, let's say in Texas, that were running dry, depleted, all of a sudden now they're filling up again? And that is correct. They're not filling up at the same rate that they were able to be drained but they are filling back up because the oil's coming from a far lower depth inside the mantle, and that's where it's being forced up from. Is there a, I, I, I don't want to call it a prosaic explanation, but those people that don't 
subscribe to abiotic oil, what would their explanation for those oil wells once depleted filling up again if the oil is in fact organic? They don't have an explanation because you can't just keep going deeper and deeper. You get to the point where there is molten rock and you couldn't possibly have uh, petroleum in presence of molten rock. It'd be too hot for those compounds to, to exist. So what's happening is you're producing the feedstock in that molten rock, and then as that feedstock comes up, it's the bubbled up CO2 and bubbled up hydrogen that are being cre- created as fission byproducts, and those byproducts, as they rise up through this refinery, are combined together, and the more of whatever different elements you have, you'll end up with other chains, but basically the simplest chain would be methane, which is CH4. All right, we're going to take a time out, Joseph. Stay put. We'll come back. Science writer, retired engineer, founding member of Principia Scientific International stays with us. More on abiotic oil. We'll get around to talking about the perplexing questions about the Saturn V rocket and the lunar lander, what that means for, um, you know, did we land on the moon? And uh, also, dangers of 5G. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Joseph A. Olson stays with us, and uh, we're talking about abiotic oil. Incidentally, uh, Joseph is one of the co-authors of Slaying the Dragon, Death of the Greenhouse Gas Theory. Uh, So this idea that, that the abiotic oil is coming up from deep within the earth does that mean they have to drill down extra further to get it well they keep finding it at deeper and deeper depths so that's one further proof of what we got but let me just uh, back up just a little bit and i'll i'll do my initial article on this was posted at canada free press in september of 2010 it was called fossil fuel is nuclear waste and it had 11,000 crosslinks in one day. Canada Free Press has a language translation bar on the side of their um, articles. And I went to uh, Wiki, and I pulled up the, the title of my article in quotes, which means it's just that unique combination of words. And there was 11,000 crosslinks and 10 crosslinks per page. I went through the first 100 pages and wrote down... 25 foreign languages. So that's the power of the Internet. I wrote an article, and people went, this is really good information, went to the translation bar and put it on their Facebook pages worldwide in less than 24 hours. So that's pretty remarkable. But here's one of the um, little topics that I covered. Um, California has interesting place names from its multicultural cultural heritage. Pismo Beach is named after the Chimua Indian word for globs of tar due to the natural hydrocarbon outflow. The Spanish Portillo expedition in 1769 discovered a molten tar geyser in present-day La Brea tar pits in downtown Los Angeles. La Brea is the Spanish word for tar. 
it was it is down now to about ten gallons per day production, but it was just a streaming tar that ran down Wilshire Boulevard and emptied out into Long Beach. In eighteen ninety two, Ed Donnery, who was one of the principal culprits in the Teapot Dome scandal, drilled his first well north of Los Angeles. It was two hundred feet deep. It shot two hundred feet in the air, which doesn't match spindle top, but it gives you an idea of the amount of pressure that had been built up by that oil not being released and used, and uh, it was free-flowing, so 200 feet deep, shoots 200 feet in the air, free-flowing oil. Uh, After he did his, they littered the beach of Long Beach with oil wells, and they were able to completely reduce the oil and the consumption by the archaea bacteria ate up all of the oil that had been stockpiled on the beach, and now you have these pristine beaches in California where they don't want to be allowed to drill oil because they don't want to have oil spills coming up and tarnishing the beaches that a hundred years ago were almost paved asphalt streets. It's absolutely That's absurd. Interesting. Oh my! So you're saying if there is an, uh, an whether the oil spill is natural, like a geyser spewing out this tar or whether it's an oil tanker spilling oil, it's, it's, it's not an ecological disaster as we've been led to believe. No, they've got biological. If you try to reduce it with chemical agents like they did with the uh, global horizon in the Gulf, you end up with a nightmare, an ecological nightmare. But you have archaea, which live off of hydrocarbons that can digest it. Really interesting thing. I wrote an article at Canada Free Press called Amazing New Ronco Proxy Crock. How you could cook your numbers with, um, with and it's a satire, but it's really funny how you could cook your numbers with this uh, magical crock pot. And one of the things is we had mentioned earlier about carbon 14. Well, if you do a fresh killed seal or penguin in Antarctica, they carbon date to 2,500 to 3,000 years old. Well, how in the world can they be 3,000 years old? Most of the marine life has a carbon date of 400 years old. And you know that most marine life is not 400 years old. The Unless it's a Greenland shark. Yes, you're right. Yes, yes. Well, the difference is that the bottom part of the food chain are single-cell organisms. For most of the terrestrial stuff, that's bacteria, and the bacteria are going to take a large portion of their carbon intake from the carbon-14 that's in the atmosphere. So when plants do photosynthesis, they absorb a little bit of the carbon-14. They make sugars, starches, and cellulose by a similar process to refineries. They're just adding more and more hydrocarbon chains onto a molecule. So you start with a little sugar molecule, you make it into a starch molecule, and you make it into a cellulose molecule. When the animal digests it, they put acids in there and they reduce the cellulose down to starch that they can use, and then they use the starch and reduce it down to sugar and fats that you can run your whole body off of. So it's just basically an up-and-down chemical reaction, which chemical engineers love talking about because they they love everything to be based on chemicals, but that's not the whole end of the story. So anyhow, um, you have these microorganisms that live off of seafloor vent food only 
in Antarctica that are able to digest this methane. And then those archaea become the base of the food chain for the krill, and the krill become the food uh, chain for all of the small fish and the whales. Absolutely <laughs> so fascinating. Means, Let me... Yeah, so, so that means you've got nothing but a C12 food chain instead of having the, the C14 factor. So that means that you can't use carbon dating everywhere on the planet because it's variable. Right, right. So if if oil, I love this idea that it is the product of nuclear waste, in other words, uranium, these endless seams of uranium decaying deep within the earth. If, it, if this uranium is so uh, omnipresent throughout the world, why do we find oil wells, oil uh, in, in only certain parts, so Saudi Arabia, Texas, parts of Pennsylvania, Ohio, Western Canada? Why isn't it ubiquitous? Well, because it comes up through fault lines. So until we understood the plate tectonics, we didn't understand that there were, and that's what the Russians had actually uh, uh, prophesized as well. So after I was doing, or well, actually when I was doing my show notes, we I did a similar program on this on March 18th on with uh, George Norrie on Coast to Coast. And doing my show notes for that, I came across a article that was also published at Canada Free Press, and that was published in uh, on July fourteenth, two thousand eight. And the author of that uh, was J. P. Morgan, who's an engineer, a forensic engineer in New Zealand. And his article is I think I think it was Peter Morgan. J. P. would be the banker. Peter, yeah, okay, Peter J. Morgan. I'm sorry. Uh, anyhow, oil is not a fossil fuel, and AGW is non-science. I had difficulty finding this because uh, Google's gotten really bad about filtering anything that's going oh, yes. all of the narratives. So I had found this article and sent it to you, and then I had a heck of a time. That They said the article doesn't exist until I actually got the full title correct in quotes and the author, and then they went, oh, yeah, here it is at Canada Free Press. He goes through <laughs> a complete history of of the the Russian involvement, which includes um, the first Russian scientist was 1757, uh, Mihailo Lumo You can tell I don't speak Russian very well, but then he gets to the uh, really most important one, which is Dmitri Medvedev, and he's the one that created the periodic table and he said that oil was created at great depths and bubbled up through cracks in in the in the rock and that's exactly been proven in 1951 by Nikola um Kurdronstvev and I don't want to right. say that I pronounced that correctly but anyhow you can read his article it does a really good job of explaining the early part of the history of the theory now in America there was a Cornell professor named Thomas Gold who was was from Hungary and was fluent in Russian and knew a lot of the Russian scientists. And he was an uh, astron- astronomer, and he took their material, and he said, well, you know, I think the Russians might be onto something, but um, I'm going to go ahead and put my own little twist on it. So he wrote a an article in 1992 called Deep Hot Biosphere. And in 1999, he turned it into a book, and he managed to convince people that 
oil came from bionic sources, that there were microorganisms that lived underneath the earth, and they were the ones that were eating up the rocks and making the, the petroleum products. So they drilled two wells, and I think they were about 12,000 feet deep. They used extreme sterile measures to make sure that they could bring up biological samples from the depth, and both wells failed. So everybody said, well, gold has proven that it doesn't work. And this is kind of, you know, like the the straw man argument that they make in a lot of cases when they're trying to prove something. They'll find somebody to do a false experiment, and then they'll go, well, that, that proves that you can't use right. hydrochloroquine it, to, to cure uh, Chinese cooties. It's like, wait a minute, <laughs> you know? You okay, so in other words, gold that. was wrong. But the, the critics, his version of abiotic oil is wrong. So the critics latch, they point to him and they say, see, he was wrong. Correct. Therefore, the theory of abiotic oil is wrong. Correct. Isn't that funny oh. how that works? Oh, we've seen that played out time and time again. So um, what would ha- we're, we're heading into a break here shortly. Let me ask the question and then we'll, uh, we'll get an answer from you on the other side. What would okay. happen to the price of oil? I mean, it's, 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 um, what is it, around $60 a barrel right now or less? What would yep. happen to the price of oil if it suddenly became understood and accepted that, that oil was virtually um, renewable? I mean, I, I, maybe that's a rhetorical question. I guess we know the answer, but we'll get, to, we'll get some details on the other side. Jo- Joseph Olson, science writer, retired engineer, founding member of Principia Scientific International, back with more of The Conspiracy Show after this. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrant. Welcome back. Oil and gas are nuclear waste, a byproduct of decaying uranium deep within the Earth's core. Abiotic oil. Joseph A. Olson is with us from Principia Scientific International. Uh, So if oil was virtually renewable and, and that word got out, what would that do to the price of oil? Well, you'd be surprised what the price of oil would be if we didn't have sanctions against Russia, Iran, and Venezuela. Right. So let's right. just put it that way. If, that, if, those, if those stockpiles were allowed to be on the market, the oil price would certainly collapse. Right. I mean, and there may, may or may not be good reasons for certain sanctions on certain countries, but um, a low price of oil well, isn't necessarily really- good for- is not necessarily yeah. good for a country that's based on a petrodollar either. Well, you know, they started building the Alaska pipeline, and they realized that $6 a barrel oil could not be cost-feasible with the Alaska pipeline. So we had the first oil embargo in 72, and then they started drilling in the North Sea, and they realized that uh, $16 a barrel oil wasn't going to be profitable in the North Sea, so we had the 1978 oil, and that drove the price up to $30 a barrel. So if you don't think that there's not people that are manipulating the market based on their supplies, then you just aren't, aren't looking at the whole big picture. So, so the, the, the name of the game for the oil companies is not to... It's not exploration. It's to keep the oil in the ground, not to extract it. 
Well, because there's a lot less profit for them if all of the oil was turned on. And the only negative, uh, if you want to call it that, from putting carbon dioxide in the air is that it increases photosynthesis. That's the only thing. There's absolutely zero possibility that a uh, carbon dioxide molecule can capture, store, redirect, or amplify radiant energy coming from the sun. Anything that happens in the atmosphere to sunlight is a reduction in the heat that reaches the surface of the earth. Anything that happens in the atmosphere at night is a reduction in the heat loss. And delayed cooling is not warming. So nothing in the atmosphere warms the planet. That's another piece of false science. All right. We'll uh, maybe pursue that a little bit more later. I want to focus also on the existence of hydrocarbons in out in in outer space. So, for example, on the um, the moon t- Titan, uh, which is one of Jupiter's moons, they're they're, they're speculating, or maybe they know that that the the atmosphere on Titan is composed of methane. That's that's a hydrocarbon. Are they suggesting that there was once life on Titan? Uh, I mean, how do they explain the existence of a hydrocarbon? on other planets, on other moons. Well, it's interesting. Earth has water which exists uh, naturally in three phases. It exists as liquid in the oceans and lakes. It exists as as solid on the ice caps and on the tops of uh, high mountain peaks. And it exists as a vapor in the atmosphere. Well, on Titan, the same exact thing happens with methane. But the temperature on Titan never gets above minus 100 degrees Fahrenheit. You have frozen methane ice caps on the poles. You have liquid methane oceans that they estimate could be 1,000 feet deep. And then you have methane clouds that form and blow across the surface of the planet. So it exists in all three phases. You can take spectrograph and tell absolutely for certain because everything has its own little uh, set of spectral lines, you can tell that it's methane in all three of those locations. And there's methane, there's giant methane nebula clouds out there in, in the other galaxies. So, you know, to say that it can only come from dead dinosaurs is patently absurd. And they found it on meteorites, you know. So it's how do you have hydrocarbons on meteorites that could n- never possibly have supported a dinosaur and a bunch of ferns. So same process, decaying uranium on meteorites on on Titan or something else exp- to explain the existence of hydrocarbons off-planet. Yes, I would say that they're all in that, that same uh, method of production. Because the planet, the the cosmos would have probably started off with um, more basic elements, and you would have a lot of the larger elements. There's pretty much evidence that Mars at one time had a volcanic activity, and the vision produces not only the heat. You're talking a million times the amount of energy that you get with a, a chemical reactions, combustion, say, of TNT. So you're talking about a million times. Well, people don't really understand what a million is. It's like, yeah, it's a big number. But to put that in a, in a visual sense, 
if you have something that's 100 feet by 100 feet, then that would be a um, 10,000 square feet. So you've got 100, right. which has two zeros, times 100 with two zeros, so you've got four zeros. That's 10,000. If you also made it 100 feet tall, then you'd have six zeros. So that means if you've got a one-by-one-foot square out of a 100-by-100-foot 100 uh, structure, that is one in a million. So if we're talking parts per million or we're talking a million times more uh, energy, that's the ratio that you need to visually uh, conceptualize. And that amount of energy flows up through the biosphere. There's no other place for it to go. So as that energy is coming up, it's making all this molten rock. Now, another thing that we did oh, not Oh, hang on, know, Joseph. I got to – sorry, pardon the interruption. I've got to take a time out here. This was a short segment. We'll come back, talk some more about abiotic oil. We'll also talk about the Saturn V rocket and the lunar landing and or lunar lander and some uh, perplexing issues with those. Back with more of our conversation right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. So, Joseph, we were talking about um, the existence of hydrocarbons like methane on uh, Titan, one of Jupiter's moons. Um, You had one final point that you were uh, discussing before the break. So let's finish up with that. And then a few more questions remain on abiotic oil before we hit the top of the hour. And then after that, we'll talk Saturn V rockets and the lunar lander. (laughs) <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, what was I talking about again? Geez, I'm, I was digging up my stuff on Saturn because I didn't realize we were going to be talking about the Saturn rocket. So, well, you we, you were talking about uh, uh, the the molecule. You were talking about imagine you know uh, something that's oh, yeah, 100, 100 by 100, 100 square by, feet by 100 by 100. So that's what we're right. talking about in the way of energy. All of that flows through the biosphere, and then something that we didn't discover until we got our GPS system in um, and completed. I was working with the uh, Texas land surveyors were doing the state plane coordinate system, and they were trying to take the old uh, USGS mapping and triangulate every point in the state so that you had coordinate system. And then when they started putting up the first satellites, they said, oh, boy, this is great. We're going to be able to do all this with just satellites instead of having to go out and measure off of USGS monuments. And the first test that they did with that they kept getting increasing accuracy on a horizontal grid, but they had a vertical anomaly. And they said, well, you know, as soon as we get an additional satellites and we can triangulate from 10 or 12 satellites simultaneously, we'll be able to eliminate all these errors. And that way we'll be able to do elevation benchmarks for, like, floodplain elevations and stuff like that as well. Well, it turned out that they had a, a persistent... 18-inch vertical elevation change every day. And they went, well, how in the world can this happen? Well, guess what? It coincided with the ocean tides. So the moon is pulling the crust of Earth that's floating on this liquid magma up 18 inches every day and dropping it 18 inches every night as the moon goes by. So that was an incredible piece of 
information that it was like, oh, my God, further proof that plate tectonics is correct because that ends up being the motive force. If you're lifting that plate up and down, then you're going to find places along the plate where you will have these you know, rings of fire, and that's where the molten rock comes out. And the molten rock, as it comes out, particularly in the ocean, it cools, and then it's basically ratcheting one set of plates underneath others. So you end up with sub- subduction zones because every night the moon is lifting up the, <clears throat> which is not always night because if it's a new moon, it's going to happen during the day. But the moon is lifting up the crust of the earth as well as positioning the oceans alternately back and forth across the crust of the earth. So you're loading it. And then you're creating these cracks, and as these fissure cracks peel open from the gravity, they're filled with magna from below, and then the magna solidifies because it hits the four-degree centigrade water at the bottom of the ocean. And that way you're constantly ratcheting in one direction uh, okay. due to the I, I don't want to go – gravity. Uh, I don't want to get too far off topic, but you mentioned something there that just stuck in my mind, and that is a possible then connection between – tectonic activity and the cycles of the moon uh so f- so for example is could we predict earthquakes based on moon cycles well guess what there's another way of predicting earthquakes and that is based on uh radon uh on the far end the the right hand side of the periodic chart you have a group of elements that at one time were called inert gases and this is uh neon uh, helium uh, argon krypton xenon and radon well radon is radioactive it has a half life of 2.8 days if you have a pound of radon it will be uh a 16th of an ounce in 28 days they have discovered spikes in radon gas at volcanoes and at earthquake sites. And that was pretty exciting uh, news when it was first posted in Popular Science and Popular Mechanics back in the 80s. But then all of a sudden they went, well, we don't actually want people to know that there's variable fission. And so one of the other factors involved in earthquakes and volcanic eruptions is that you have an irregular rate of fission from the uranium and thorium atoms that are inside the earth. So they're subject to bombardment from variable cosmic rays and so as the cosmic rays are sending that little cue ball down and knocking either a a, uh, odd uh, pool ball neutron off of the the large atom or they're knocking a proton off they're creating these isotopes they're creating those fission reactions and we have no control over that so probably there is a universal pulse of cosmic energy that's sending varying amounts of gamma rays and then we we're protected from those gamma rays from a magnetosphere but the magnetosphere is also variable so you have a, a variable layer of protection. You have a variable um, amount of incoming gamma rays. And the gamma rays are the same thing that they use in a nuclear reactor or a nuclear bomb. You just send in the gamma rays and bust apart the atoms, and then you hope there's enough atoms in your body to have a chain reaction. And if it's a power plant, you want to have a limited control chain reaction. And if it's a, a nuclear bomb, you want to have the most bang you can get in the shortest period of time. 
So those are the, the functions that we're dealing with. It's still a fission process. So earthquakes are driven by gravitational forces from all of the planets, which are causing the, cru- the floating crust to move around a little bit, but they're also caused because of variable uh, volcanism, which is a result of variable fission. And that's variable concentrations of uranium. Um, I've written a whole bunch of articles on these. There, I've got 60 of them available at Canada Free Press and 30 of them at Climate Realist, and I've probably got uh, 30 or 40 articles now at Principles Scientific that I've written and researched on these various subjects. So anybody that's interested in more of my research, but I'm not the only one researching at this. There's, there's ample evidence that this is what's really going on. So, and, and cosmic rays, um, to what extent, I mean, I, I don't believe, or maybe they are, included in the, uh, the so-called you know, models uh, that are trying to predict and understand climate change, to what extent are cosmic rays responsible for, for you know, the Earth's temperature rising or lowering, uh, ice ages, hurricanes? Well, there's not very many good means of proxy for that. So even though we've we've got ice core isotope samples, well, that doesn't really tell us exactly what the fluctuations are in gamma rays. The group called Electric Universe, and I think they've also got another uh, group that they sponsor called Thunderbolt Project. They've got a whole group of uh, highly trained, you know, physicists and engineers most of them with PhDs that make regular presentations, and they discuss this stuff in depth. But some of the climate websites have prohibited even the use of those words. They put an auto-delete that if you use the words electric universe or some of these uh, claimed skeptic science sites, if you put in the word slayer or slaying the sky dragon or faux science, you put in any of these key words, and they just do an auto-delete so that your comments never show up. So you're not even allowed to participate <laughs> in the discussion among skeptics, which is fascinating. You know, fascinating. Ridiculous. When I went to the Heartland ICC-9 conference out in uh, Las Vegas, I was in a room with 600 claimed skeptics. There weren't a dozen of us in the whole room that had ever taken thermodynamics, so you couldn't talk radiation physics to any of these people because they'd already been uh, drinking the green Kool-Aid that there's a little bit of carbon warming. But one of the guys I met there was a guy named Arthur Vituro, who was a um, geology professor at University of Maryland, and he had gotten 30 years of seismic data on uh, the Pacific Ocean and 30 years of NOAA weather data, and he put the two together, and he said, sure enough, there's a direct correlation between seismic activity and the Pacific Decadal Oscillation, which is the El Nino-La Nina. So the Pacific Ocean is half of the surface area of the Earth. You don't realize right. that, but, but when it's sunset in Peru, it's sunrise over in Thailand, you know, it's just like the thing is so big. So that is one of the major drivers of climate on the planet is what's happening in the Pacific Ocean. And if you're All right, we've got to take a time out here, Joseph. We're at the top of the hour. Stay with us. We'll uh, continue our discussion with Joseph Olson, science writer, retired engineer, Principia Scientific International. We'll talk Saturn V rockets, lunar landings, 5G, and uh, your questions and comments. Back with more. Stay with us. 